Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell, and today we're going to hell and back. Today we're going to be talking with Brian Cuevas, author of Travels in the Netherworld, Popular Buddhist Narratives of Death and the Afterlife in Tibet. Professor Cuevas is looking at a particular kind of Tibetan Buddhist literature called Delok stories. These are stories about folks who have died, and unfortunately, usually end up going to hell, and while they travel around in the uh, in the bardo or in the afterworld, they meet the various various people, various uh, ghosts, and even zombies, and will eventually have their karma judged by the Lord of Death, Yama. All of this after seeing lots of suffering before being sent back here to the land of the living, where they extol the virtues of being a good Buddhist and why it's so important to be a good Buddhist. So, as you can imagine, this is rich, exciting literature. That's not particularly well known outside of Tibet, um, and but but more than just this interesting kind of literature about uh, Tibetan Buddhist cosmology, it also says something about what we might call popular religion, and the relationship between popular or common religion and religious practices, and the more orthodox doctrinal literature that one finds in Tibetan Buddhism. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview. So today we're talking with uh, Professor Brian Cuevas um, about his new book, Travels in the Netherworld, Buddhist Popular Narratives of Death and the Afterlife in Tibet. Um, it's a, a very fascinating book about uh, what might be called popular literature and popular death tales in uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan religion more generally. And I have had the pleasure of, of, of reading it and absorbing it and thinking about uh, the afterlife and uh, all that awaits us. And I'm looking very forward to speaking with, uh, with Brian today. Um, so uh, welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you for the nice words there at the beginning. Um, well, you know, it's it's uh, this is one of those topics that I, I, I secretly really enjoy about Buddhism. You know, we don't talk that much about uh, the hell realms in uh, in uh, American right. <laughs> context, right, so right. it's always sort of fun to think about. Um, but before we get into the book, um, I just wanted to uh, uh, find out a bit more about uh, our guest today and um, how, how it is you became interested um, in, in Buddhism, or Buddhist studies, I mean, um, and also this particular, this particular topic. Well, okay, that's, that's a long story. Of course, I won't give you the long story. But uh, uh, basically, now I'm a historian of religion, a specialist of uh, Buddhist traditions in pre-modern Tibet. I'd been interested in uh, Buddhist ideas and uh, Buddhist languages going back really to my late high school years. Mm-hmm. And I was also interested early on in topics like this one here of death and death related practices. And I found in Buddhism a really fascinating. Um, information about that about that topic and uh so I sort of pursued those directions in my own graduate work and ended up doing um work on death and death related 
texts and uh, death-related uh, ritual practices, a history of the uh, materials, particularly the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is what the topic of my first book. And uh, this book is really just an extension of some of those th- uh, same themes, um, death and the hell realms and, and the afterlife and uh, these sorts of, to me, very fascinating and central issues in Buddhism. Um, hmm. So, in a nutshell, this is, uh, I guess you would say, how I have come to this. Uh, some think of some of a morbid topic, <laughs> but I actually <laughs> see it, as I've said before, as a central uh, topic in, in Buddhism. I think, really, it is perhaps the most important topic in Buddhism. Um, in all Buddhist traditions, not just the Tibetan ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sort of central question, uh, the existential question of, of life and death. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Death and impermanence. I mean, this is what impermanence is, the, uh, the paradigm of impermanence, you know. So, um, But what's interesting in this particular material, which uh, I'll say something about here shortly, but... Uh, Buddhism uh, in all forms, Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism more generally, uh, promises this sort of mastery and control over death. And uh, Buddhism does this in its ideal of liberation from samsara. It also uh, offers this uh, promise of control through its meditations and the ritual practices and so forth. And it's always been my uh, feeling that this is one of Buddhism's main attractions, really, and has been uh, historically in the different cultural regions that that this promise of control over over life's end, you know, mortality and so forth. Um, but sometimes, and uh, you know, most times actually, people don't really have control over their deaths. <laughs> You know, right, and right. Uh, they're not—they're not masters of death. Uh, even uh, good Buddhists aren't masters of death, and uh, typically are terrified and confused. Uh, you know, by the by the thought of death or by the by the experience itself, and that's the death I'm most interested in describing mm-hmm. in this book, uh, which we could call, I guess, an ordinary death or a non-professional death, maybe even a um, unmastered death. Um, right, right. So, yeah. a death with a bit more of a, a, a less control, I guess I could say. That's right. That's right. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, it's just a, a, a such a central topic. Death is, and um, um, but I'm not. I was not as interested in this. Uh, Particular study and focusing on the masters, the superheroes mm-hmm. of of the death phenomenon, um, and uh, specifically uh, what we're looking at this travels in the netherworld is um, it's a book about uh, uh, people that ordinary people that die and they. Uh, travel, as you mentioned in the beginning, to hell uh, and to other uh, Buddhist realms, usually the negative realms, <laughs> the scary realms, the uh, the anxious, uh, these uh, fearful realms. Uh, they travel uh, throughout these 
regions and uh, have all these experiences, and then they come back to life and report those experiences. And those those people are called in Tibetan uh, Delok. And Delok means literally to pass away and return. And uh, so this book is about these people uh, who die, go to hell, come back to life, and then they report their experiences. Hmm. Um, and as I had said before, these are the these are people that aren't in control of, de- of death. They're not the masters of death. They're the ones that are confused and terrified by the experience. And, and the stories are actually not always so pleasant. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Right, right, right. So, so for for some of our listeners who may not be as uh, uh, familiar with sort of traditional Buddhist cosmology, um, perhaps we can spend a, a quick second sort of talking about about some of those uh, sort of common Buddhist uh, uh, cosmological features that come up in these in these in the stories you're looking at um, or okay. the literature you're looking at. Um, you know, it, uh, it's, it's very well known that, that Buddhists believe uh, or that part of Buddhism is this idea of reincarnation and that there's these different realms of rebirth and um, so if you could uh, sort of situate these this literature within that sort of broader context and then okay and right right well uh, yes it is common uh, knowledge so you could say perhaps that there are six realms in uh, Buddhism sometimes it's enumerated as five it's extended to six realms in the in the traditional Buddhist cosmology the uh, realm of humans uh, that we know well, the realm of uh, gods, and then the demigods, however we want to translate this term, asura, um, that are fighting with the gods. And then you have uh, your lower realms, uh, the ghost, uh, ghost realm, and you have the realm of animals, of course, and then the hells. And... Um, I know with my own students uh, that are in my introduction courses to Buddhism, they're often surprised to hear that Buddhism has hell. <laughs> and not just one hell, but <laughs> 16 hells. And then 16 hells are surrounded by further hells. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, uh, mind-boggling, and the number of hells, <laughs> hot and cold hells, uh, and they're excruciating, uh, ter- tor- torturous, painful realms. Uh, and students are often surprised to hear about this. They're also usually uh, they're also surprised to hear about ghosts. Mm-hmm. That Buddhists believe in ghosts, and that there's an even there's a, an actual cosmological realm that uh, that is their own. <laughs> you know, a ghost mm-hmm. realm. Um, are what is generally translated as the hungry ghosts uh, in Buddhist cosmology. So, uh, with this particular literature in Tibet, this uh, Dalok literature, uh, the the uh, cosmological framework is certainly situated within that um, uh, very orthodox Buddhist worldview, and so the. The Dalok, these these ordinary folks who are who are who are dying, and then traveling to these different realms, uh, they do tend to go. They do go down. <laughs> That's generally the, the direction. It's uh, rarely do they go up. Now there are there are cases, and those are not ones that I've focused on in this book. But there are uh, Dalok uh, stories of 
of those who are a little bit more like the masters of death, the more mm-hmm. control, controlled uh, yogis who uh, do go to all the different realms, uh, the, excuse me, the upper realms and so forth. And of course, in the um, uh, Mahayana literature, you have uh, bodhisattvas going up and down the different realms. Uh, the Buddha's great disciple, Modgalyana, or Mulyan, the great story of him traveling to save his mother in hell. Uh, you have these stories. Uh, but again, those are more the, the masters of the process. Um, and these Delok here in Tibet uh, are, are not that, and they, they fall. And they fall into the into the negative, evil, and the torturous realms, and usually that's hell. <laughs> you know. So they go to hell, <laughs> no, literally. Um, so uh, the the book focuses, uh, as you're saying, on this on this uh, the, the figure of the Delok and the sort of Delok uh, literature. Um, and and one of the things I found really interesting that you do is you you sort of profile uh, a few different folks, but they come from from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, you know, here you're saying that they're sort of not uh, uh, masters of death. Uh, or professionals, right. so to speak, but um, you, right. you do seem to have you know, a llama, a, a, a housewife, and, and these other characters. So, I, I, you know, speak to us for a second just about the sort of range of characters who show up in this literature. Okay, well, that uh, that actually points to uh, one of the po- um, one of my interests in in, in, the, in the book, and that is in broader terms. Uh, the book deals with popular religion, or the, this category, popular Buddhism, mm. uh, and more specifically, uh, it's uh, about popular perceptions, uh, popular attitudes about death and the afterlife. And um, by popular, though, I, I try to make this clear throughout the book, I mean common, widely accepted, mm. um, even public in some sense. And, and, and the reason that I, I stress the way I'm using this term, popular as common, is um, that this is, uh, runs counter to conventional understanding of the word popular, uh, referring to something, uh, to, uh, to some um, independent category like the non-monastic, the folkloric, uh, illiterate, or oral, mm-hmm. or the non-elite uh, category, the lay category. Um, and that in traditional uh, understandings, the popular then becomes set up over and against or under and against the elite category. And so you have these con- this conventional binary that, that, that distorts uh, Buddhism uh, on the ground mm-hmm. as, a, as it's lived. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the that traditional two-tiered model of a of an elite Buddhism versus a folk Buddhism, let's say, uh, doesn't really tell us much historically about uh, this uh, Buddhist culture, a society, and religion. In this case, Tibet. Um, now, the what I'm doing in in this book is is choosing very specifically. Um, four persons, four Delok, um, 
that I uh, analyze their their stories, and the four that I choose, uh, as you mentioned, uh, two monks, uh, two men, a monk and a, a, a lama, and two women, both uh, lay women, uh, which represents the traditional two-tiered model of male-female or monk versus lay person. And I'm trying to show how this literature can get us to to see the blurring of these conventional distinctions, uh, you know, uh, that cut across these uh, social categories. That these are attitudes, these are perceptions, beliefs, maybe we could say, about death and the afterlife that cut across these social categories, monks, laity, uh, nobles, commoners, male, female, and so forth. So I very uh, consciously chose these four characters uh, to to get at that uh, that sense of popular as being common or widely accepted as sort of cutting across boundaries and so forth. Right, right. I, you know, I have to say, I really, actually, really appreciated that in your comments about popular religion. As as somebody who who's interested in in, in popular religion and that dichotomy we make between. Uh, elite Buddhist um, and and all of the, you know, it seems like oftentimes we assume that the elite Buddhists are, are the more authentic. But um, it's interesting to to see uh, this wide range of people who are uh, influenced by or accept in in in, in some terms these uh, uh, very common understandings of, of Buddhism in the afterlife. Right, right, and and they they run counter often to what you might expect. So if it's often uh, it. W- well, this is a literature that hasn't been studied very, um, very much in the field. But uh, you do, you would have this sense that, oh yes, this is the kind of thing that you you would expect to find among the lay people, mm-hmm. the the folk, the folk, you know, out in right. the villages and so forth. Ghost but you stories. certainly <laughs> would, right? Ghost stories. Uh, you know, this is. Uh, superstitious and whatever, uh, but you wouldn't find you wouldn't find say a monk having this experience or a lama who is supposedly the elite of the a Buddhist world uh, and so that's what I'm actually uh, so I, I do have a monk and a lama that are uh, also equally let's say uh, confused and terrified <laughs> by the death experience you know when they're not really they're not supposed to be right, right, right. Of course. They, they should know better <laughs> right exactly exactly and uh, but I, you know, I don't actually abandon the um, the usefulness of uh, contrasting dichotomies. I mean, we, we I think it's, it's the way we sort of process information anyway. It's so difficult not to have uh, this these binaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm trying to do, what I, I wanted to stress in the book too, was not that okay. That the dichotomies are in and of themselves not. Um, problematic. I mean, they they can be useful. The key is not to put too fine a point on those distinctions, you know, between elites or uh, monk versus layperson. Uh, and worse yet would be to turn those into actual historical categories uh, or mm-hmm. actual cultural categories, such that there's a the separate culture. There's a monk culture, and then there's the lay culture, and they don't have any any connection to one another. Um, Right, so I do suggest some. Um, I do suggest a set of contrasting 
concepts or terms that we 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 might be able to use that do um, acknowledge that this that there are distinctions clearly between a monk's life and a layperson's life, um, but these are terms that can. Uh, cut across some social categories for us or some uh, contrasting um, uh, terms that cut across these these typically dichotomized categories and mm-hmm. those are uh, what I've uh, suggested it's the idea of a kind of a distinction between a religious practitioners and here it wouldn't necessarily have to be monks lamas versus laypersons but what I'm calling a learned practitioner versus an unlettered or someone who who may not be that versed in the uh, intellectual tradition or in the textual tradition mm-hmm. of Buddhism, um, because in Tibet, of course, you can have some uh, very high religious practitioners or religious figures or religious authorities, let's say, that are illiterate, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Another another set was the formal informal contrast between religious ideas, um, the sort of formal understanding of the way the books tell it like it is. This is the way the books tell us it is, and then there's a sort of form informal understanding that almost all folks have an un, informal understanding of some of these. Even the most the most uh, scholastic of monks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there are some informal. Um, understandings of some doctrines that are picked up along the way, maybe in conversations in a village home or uh, at a Dharma lecture or something like this, you know. So uh, anyway, these are some of the issues that are raised on that point that you you asked on mm-hmm. popular and 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 the reason that I'm focusing on these four. Uh, characters uh, in the book. Yeah, well, well let's uh, let's let's follow these characters. Uh, let's let's travel with them for a second. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, so so walk us through what what, what happens when these with these characters. Uh, you, you know, you you point out some some commonalities between them, and there's obviously differences as well. But there seems to be a sort of set pattern of of these folks who who pass away and they they travel and and so you know uh, share with our listeners this uh, <laughs> some of these stories. Some of the, well, some of the common yeah, yeah, elements yeah. of the stories are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just thinking the the imagery is often very such you know visual, uh, uh, wonderful image you know, dark and frightening. But right. but. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I do in terms, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. One thing that I uh, uh, these are a rich uh, literary works, and they're actually quite long. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to make a choice when I was looking at all of these uh, uh, accounts to focus on what I saw to be the, uh, the sort of key or the heart of what's going on in the experience. And, and so I did focus on three aspects of the experience that's common to all the Dalok accounts in Tibet, and that's uh, there is a dying, there's a dying experience, of course, and that's usually... Uh, narrated in really fine detail <laughs> about the about their dying experience. Well, you know, their 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 sense of their body collapsing and and uh, this losing consciousness. They're they're scared. They all they always start out getting sick, so, uh, and they can't figure out why they're 
uh, ill or that no medicines are working, and 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 they go into into great detail about their illness and their experience of the dying process, and uh, so that's one thing we talk more about that here in a moment is to lay out the three areas and the other is the journey itself the travels of the journey to the hell realms uh, and also to the intermediate state between death and rebirth which in Tibetan is called the pardo but um, uh, that and the judgment scene uh, before the lord of death Yama uh, which is a consistent uh, a motif in all of this literature um, in which Yama, the person, will go before the, the great judge and uh, all of his or her uh, sins, uh, evil actions, and so forth, their karma is laid out and there's a, uh, a balance of, of good and bad deeds and then the Yama decides whether they should be uh, sent further down into the hell realms or if they're sent back home. And in the course of this case, they go back home uh, to preach to everyone that you should not be living a bad life. You should be a very good Buddhist because I know what it's like in the hell realms. Um, and then the the third sen- uh, complex of, or the scenario, let's say, uh, is of course the return and uh, that too is described often in some great detail, in uh, very personal detail, just as the dying experience. Uh, the uh, these accounts are, are so personal. This is another thing that's so compelling about them is that that they don't have a generic quality at all about them. Maybe the, some of the journeys uh, start to become somewhat generic. That's when you get more into the standard Buddhist cosmological material, which they're drawing from. And, and in some of those uh, long journeys, things get somewhat repetitive or or there's a more of a template in place. But where things were really personal are in the dying accounts and in the return accounts. Um, uh, though that now that I've just said that, I realize that in the journey itself, of course, they're meeting people that that they that they knew in their past, in their previous life, or they they run into uh, old grandparents or something like this, or their old teachers, their old llamas or something in the town. Um, but it's really fascinating. I felt the this, this personal quality and um, uh, a real attention to the what would you say the the uh, fr- fragile uh, ex- the fragile sort of psychological or emotional experience of dying and mm. and. Um, what happens when they die uh, they die and they usually don't know that they're dead hmm. and so there's a moment where they um, trying to figure out why no one is talking to them no one's asking or they're asking questions of the people around them and they're ignoring them and they get angry because they don't understand why no one's talking to them and uh, this reminds me of the movie Sixth Sense, uh, <laughs> which is a great Dalek movie, actually. Uh, 
uh, where the, uh, Bruce Willis doesn't know he's dead, you know, right. he's walking around and he's having all this interaction with, uh, with, with dead people, but he doesn't know that they're dead or that he's dead. And that's exactly what's, what this, these stories are like in the beginning. And, uh, like I said, it can be kind of creepy and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like a horror movie or something, you know, and, uh, I found that, I find that very compelling, uh, um, uh, anyway, so then, then they go on their trip, and uh, that is never as as you would expect when they go to hell and everything. They don't they're not seeing things there that are very pleasant, um, and um, they usually uh, encounter people that are, of course, suffering greatly, hmm. and uh, these uh, people suffering in hell are pleading with the Delo, to uh, please, you know, report back to my family, and uh, they, they they need to do something, you know, <laughs> say some prayers on my behalf, or, or or you know, help me out down here. It's terrible, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing, and uh, uh, and then they return, and and there's sort of a uh, yeah, another reference to a kind of movie scene. I mean, it's like a Wizard of Oz kind of moment at the end. They kind of wake up, and the family's around them, and they're like, oh, my gosh, you're back, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so that that's in a nutshell the uh, the um, mm-hmm. uh, journey and, the, and the, the, what you would find in the book if you... Uh, opened it and got into it. And, and so the, the character of, of Yama, the sort of Lord of Death, um, I find very, just very fascinating. I think there's another sort of popular conception of Buddhism that's uh, sort of non-judgmental. Um, you know, Buddhism is a non-judgmental religion, and here in the, in the midst of the story is this, uh, this this figure who is judging very harshly. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> which is uh, just a, a sort of fascinating turn. Um so, uh, you know, I, I would love to hear more about Yama, but I'm also um, just interested in the, the other characters that show up in these um, in these stories. Um, I was just flipping through the book again before uh, uh, before we spoke today and uh, uh, came across a character that I think is, is probably going to resonate with American audiences, and that is the zombie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, just, uh, if you can say some more about some of the, the sort of... Uh, supernatural characters that, that populate right. these spaces. There's the zombies and the demons and, um, and, uh, uh, dogs and <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and they, the... they just seem rich with symbolism and, 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 and meaning for oh yeah the Dalek, but also, you know, I think in, in terms of Buddhist ideas more generally. Well, definitely. And, uh, this, this, this kind of, uh, material pushes, opens up these issues uh, one of the zombie the issues that in Tibet uh, zombies they're called Rolong Rolong is, uh, means literally a standing corpse um, and there, there, there's a connection to the uh, Indian Vaitala hmm. which has often been strangely translated as vampire I don't know why uh, <laughs> that put forward as a translation but the Vaitala are the Rolong the the zombie is is pretty much what we think of as a zombie. It's a walking corpse, uh, and the uh, uh, stories of the Rolong of the zombie, Tibetan zombie, in uh, Tibet there there are several kinds of of zombies, and uh, there are two basic types of uh, uh, 
are two basic ways that a corpse ends up walking. <laughs> and is um, one is that uh, the corpse can be reanimated by uh, ritual means by uh, using various tantric uh, practices, tantric techniques. Some might even say certain types of uh, Buddhist magic. Hmm. But, uh, oh, Oh, just when when the when the zombie becomes when the corpse becomes reanimated, it's 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 considered that person is still considered dead, though. Correct? I mean, it's not. Yeah, yeah. They it's, they don't do this to a living person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, you take a corpse usually from the cremation grounds mm-hmm. and animate it through these ritual means. And then, just like you have, like with the Haitian uh, notion of the zombie, then the, that that corpse is used for the benefit of the of the yogi, uh, the, there are great stories. This is something you find not just in Tibet, but in India and throughout Central Asia, Mongolia, and so forth. The notion that these animated corpses have a, have a certain kind of um, uh, wish-fulfilling power, and mm-hmm. they also are connected to wealth and gold, and, and um, so that they, they can be of great benefit to the yogi who animates the dead. Now, that's one kind of zombie. What we're getting more in the Stalok literature, these are people who are dying, and then they're coming back to life. So what happens in those return-from-death scenes, the uh, Dalo comes back to life, but the people around the, uh, the person think that, wait a minute, this person, this, our daughter or our llama here was dead, but now he or she is moving, you know, so there's a fear that they've become zombies. Mm-hmm. And how is that? that's the other type of zombie in Tibetan literature, and that is the zombie that's animated not by um, not by yogic means, but by demons, mm-hmm. uh, spirits who inhabit or possess the corpse, whose corpses are vulnerable once the consciousness leaves the body, the, in basic Buddhist uh, terms, the body is an empty shell, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's vulnerable to attack. Uh, you can inhabit the body. So that's uh, one of these um, concerns of fear in the tradition of these animated corpses. Uh, so that uh, that uh, I get into this some uh, in the in the book as well. Some of these issues of the zombie beliefs in Tibet, and one in uh, one of the dialog that I focus on, a woman named Karma Wangsen. She's she's the case that comes back, and and the uh, monk who's watching over her body is uh, terrified <laughs> that she's become a zombie. You know. Uh, and so they have to uh, convince convince everyone. No, no, no. She's back. You know, it's her. It's really her. It's not a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but the issue of ghosts too is another thing you had raised. Mm-hmm. But um, um, were you saying? Did I cut you off? No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh. Um, another. another one of these uh, we call maybe called supernatural components of these stories, uh, the ghosts. And uh, here we there's a story of the uh, monk um, uh, Changchup Sangye, who uh, is 
mis misidentified as a mo- as a not mo- but as a ghost. Um, and uh, there's a scene in which he um, is, uh, is haunting people, and people are thinking he's a ghost, and he doesn't know that he's dead, and you know all this kind of thing. Uh, but this is the we had talked about the basic cosmological scheme in Buddhism of the Preta realm and the ghost realm, hungry ghost realm. And usually in those those accounts of the hungry ghosts, what you what you have are ghosts. They're basically just another kind of sentient being that is um, um, racked with with pain and suffering over a great thirst and desire, craving. Uh, uh, but the, you know the standard imagery is of the big bellies and the thin necks, and they're not able to get uh, sustenance into their mouths because their mouths are too small. But they're so hungry, they have to get more and more, and they, you know they're called hungry ghosts. And, but in this case, the ghosts that we experience or that we encounter in the Dalek literature are more of the sort that we might think of in our own culture as ghosts. These are people who can't really leave their <laughs> their space or their home. They're kind of attached to their their um, their monastery cell or to their uh, household, and they kind of stick around, you know. Hmm. Um, all fascinating stuff from my perspective. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I can just imagine a, a, a Hollywood producer coming up with some great movies. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> and and, you know, right. and to get back to the the popular religion aspect, it's 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 fascinating to see how these these you know in some cases literal ghost stories or um, uh, are are concerning lamas and, and the other sort of uh, as you said sort of elite kind of or at least learned uh, uh, aspects of, of Buddhist culture. Yes, here. exactly. Uh, so. Exactly. It's it's just it is very fascinating. <laughs> um, now now it seems to me that there's uh, there's also the, the the issue of the Bardot that you mentioned um, and the mm-hmm. Tibetan Book of the Dead and um, right. I, I know that the Tibetan Book of the Dead is is, is pretty well known um, now outside of Tibet. Um, it, how is that different from this this Dalek literature? Well, the Tibetan Book of the Dead will use that title just for ease of <laughs> communication even though it's a, it's not a correct that there is no such title in Tibet but uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead literature and my first books actually of the history of this literature in Tibet itself um, that uh, that literature despite what the um, uh, post English translations of the text uh, have have reported that it is a, a fairly rarefied advanced literature and uh, it's it was it's not intended it's it's liter- liturgical materials and the, the the texts that are most commonly known as the Tibetan Book of the Dead are actually very high-end meditation manuals so that's the kind of literature that fits more into that uh, category that I started with of the mastery and control over death that uh, Buddhism promises. Mm-hmm. And so the Tibetan Book of the Dead literature is meant to be used, uh, to be employed. Uh, it's really reminders to those who have already mastered or have, have come close to mastering uh, the death process. 
and this is these texts are there as as a means of reminding the yogi, the meditator, of what they've experienced uh, during life in preparation for death. And so much of that literature, at least the liter the, the aspects of the literature that's most popular in America and Europe, uh, is more of this advanced kind of elite uh, material. Excuse me now. Of course, you do have uh, that Tibetan Book of the Dead literature is a vast uh, cycle of liturgical materials. Uh, it's not just one book. I mean, it's hundreds of books. And uh, as in any sort of funeral liturgy, uh, tradition, a cycle of funeral liturgies, you have prayers and, and a whole uh, mass of things, you know, that that are incorporated into the tradition so in those cases the prayers and uh, that you would uh, that you would use for ordinary funerals and things like that now the Dalok literatures we uh, been uh, talking about here uh, focus more on the this um, how would you say that well one of course the the um, Obviously, the the issue of the traveling to another realm, to death, or to hell, or to the intermediate state, the partos, um, uh, without much control, without any sort of uh, ability to uh, change the situation. There's uh, some references in the Dalok literature to some of the more advanced uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead-like instructions that, that people are used to to reading about. But that's by and large uh, not not in the Dalok text. This this genre of of Tibetan Buddhist literature is, I I think it would be safe to say it's a it's a moral literature. It's a it's a, a fire and brimstone literature. You know, really, it is. I mean, it is telling. It is a literature that is saying behave or or else <laughs> you know you must be a good buddhist you have to be a virtuous person if you're not a virtuous if you're not doing virtues if you're not accumulating merit if you're not being compassionate all this I, i'm going to tell you now you're in trouble you're going to hell and i know what it's like i've been there and you do not want to be there. Now, that's not really the kind of, uh, that's not necessarily the message you get in the so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead literature. Again, that literature is aimed at more advanced practitioners. And so the goal is clearly one of liberation from samsara or Buddhahood, uh, some great soteriological um, accomplishment, mm. you know. Uh, this literature is not at all about liberation from samsara or Buddhahood or any of these grand uh, goals. It really is about uh, living a virtuous life. And so, so uh, this literature then, uh, uh, how, 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 does, how do I avoid going to hell? <laughs> I guess this is the basic question here. <laughs> Well, you you follow the uh, the principles of the Buddhist or the ethical principles of Buddhism: uh, uh, kindness, uh, compassion. Uh, of course, also making offerings to the Buddha and to the uh, Dharma, to the monastic community, the Sangha, uh, the whole merit. 
uh, accumulation of merit and the merit system of of uh, transferring all of your good good virtues and blessings for the sake of the suffering of your family or of your friends or or of the uh, deceased monks, this deceased family, and so forth. And in, in this regard, the literature is m- much more closely, the Stalok literature, much more closely aligned with uh, early canonical uh, cycle of text known as the Petavatu, the uh, Preta, the, the stories of the departed, which are Pali canon, very popular in Southeast Asia. Uh, these literature about the hungry ghosts, mm-hmm. the pretas. Um and that is those stories. They have some similarity to these accounts, but the the where they're almost identical is in their message, their moral message, and the merit message mm-hmm. that they're put forth. That the dead person is suffering. And the reason they're suffering is because, one, their karma has uh, led to their suffering, but also um, their family uh, or their friends, usually their family, have not performed the proper rituals and have not given to the monks. So uh, the person suffers. So then they're always asking, please, you know, do the right thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> make offerings to the to the sangha, to the monks, mm-hmm. on my behalf, you know, so that I don't suffer <laughs> anymore. Uh, and this is a, a you know age old Buddhist uh, principle of merit and the value of the of uh, uh, accumulation of merit for oneself and for others to alleviate suffering. Um, well, that sounds like good advice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, so, so, how, so uh, toward the end of, of your book, you, you start talking about storytellers. Um, uh-huh. And uh, it, it seems as though this, and, 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 and do correct me if I'm wrong, um, it, the, the, there's the connection here between how these stories were part of sort of the, the lived religion um, in Tibet um, and, and these folks who would... Um, who would tell these stories and how these stories got circulated and became, as you say, popular. Um, um, so right. who, who, who were these storytellers and how were these stories used? Um, you know, once somebody has this experience of, of traveling to hell and back, um, what happens then when they come back and, and become storytellers? Right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah, that's, that is this, uh, 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 aftermath, let's say, of the, uh, the experience, the death experience in these stories. They, uh, come back and they tell their stories, which is what the Yama had told them to do and what the, the, this, the dead folk that they meet, uh, in all the realms say, hey, please tell everyone about my sufferings. And so, yes, indeed, they come back and then they begin to teach. Uh, but teach, in this case, is to relay the the moral messages uh, that they had been, uh, that they had received from Yama and so mm-hmm. forth. But the literature itself is actually tied very closely to a storytelling traditions in Tibet, as you mentioned there. And um, this is indeed how the literature uh, spread and um, uh, develops uh, wide popularity. Um, there are there are and continue to be um, traditions of wandering uh, Dharma teachers or Dharma 
storytellers that often carry with them paintings, the scrolls, the conkas, uh, you know, painted scrolls of the six realms, for instance, mm-hmm. um, or of episodes from various epic traditions or, or these sorts of things. And then they use the the scrolls and um, opportunities as they wander through the streets and through the villages to teach uh, and uh, in return for their teaching and, and telling good stories the people give them money and so forth like that. And it sounds so, like these, these, these teachers are not, these are both lay, lay persons and, and the learned the monastics, correct? Well, that's, that's where you start to do see a distinction that, um, um, going back mm-hmm. to those dichotomies, uh, it, it isn't monks generally that are going to be wandering mm-hmm. around telling the stories. Um, now, lamas uh, are... Lamas are one of these um, nebulous categories, really, in Tibet. I mean, because uh, you can have celibate and non-celibate. Uh, they can be monks, but they're not monks. Uh, you know, that's one of these, uh, much like in Japan. Um, these we could call maybe spiritual authorities of some sort. Yeah. Um, these storytellers are generally not recognized as authorities in some institutional sense. Um, they would be minstrels, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and maybe terms we might know from our own cultures. But um, but they serve very important uh, purposes in, in traditional Tibetan culture. Uh, not only would they tell stories, uh, moral tales, like you get these Dalok, they would tell the Dalok stories, or they would point out the different realms of the Buddhist cosmology and explain how karma works and so forth, and how you don't want to end up in the hell realms, and, you know, this sort of thing. But they also uh, told tales of heroes, epics, epic warriors, and uh, other other great Buddhist figures, uh, Milarepa, or some of these great saints, uh, Tibetan saints. Um, and so this this was uh, a very important component of the society, and also in, very specifically about the Dalok literature. It was uh, one way in which this stuff was being disseminated and distributed. And um, it seems like the, the the mechanics almost of how uh, religious ideas become common, uh, common knowledge yeah. or popular. Yeah. A certain sort, uh, we could use even the term evangelism in mm-hmm. here. I mean, uh, it's, it's a kind of evangelistic, and I actually uh, sort of describe some of this sort of evangelist movements that you get in Tibet beginning in the 12th, 13th century. That is a, a, and in this sense, it's a, it's a, a form of preaching that popularizes, popularizes the Dharma and the, and, um, and gets the word out right to mm-hmm. the to all the villages and all the people and and in emotional ways and in ways that that um, are much more compelling uh, to these folks than than some high end theoretical mm-hmm. or philosophical doctrine you know uh, which they they wouldn't be introduced to anyway I mean that only takes place in very rarefied. Co- uh, compartments in a monastery, uh, you know. So, yeah. 
yeah, it, so, it definitely sounds like evangelizing, you know, proselytizing, yeah. you know, be be a good Buddhist or or else. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and, and there is an aspect of, of Buddhism which uh, is um, missionizing in that way. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons that I I believe that it has been successful uh, and has been able to uh, make roots in so many different. Uh, cultural environments over the centuries. Uh, you know, it's done a good job of, of, of getting the message across, you know, uh, in ways that are familiar and palpable to the people, you know, and fans are like, oh, yes, 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 that, that's that's like what, uh, that, what we, we've always believed, yeah, but this is so much better, you know, that, that kind of <laughs> so. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff, and um, I think uh, well, well worth the read for for our listeners to pick this book up and, and find out more about uh, the netherworld and, and and you know how you can avoid it. I suppose <laughs> uh, we're coming up to to, the, to our to our time here, and uh, I, I'll get around to asking our, our final traditional question here on the show, and that is uh, just uh, what 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 are you working on now? What can we expect from you uh, to to follow up here um, after we go to hell and back? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I. Um it's been some time I've put, I've, I've left the hell realms, uh, I've moved away from the, the death and uh, other morbid topics, but um, these days uh, I'm currently working on uh, several projects, but uh, the main focus of, the, of these projects are on uh, magic and sorcery, uh, Buddhist sorcery and ritual magic, and uh, I'm particularly focusing on the political uses of Tibetan uh, Buddhist ritual magic sorcery uh, in the centuries that led up to um, the establishment of the office of Dalai Lama in the 17th century. Mm. Um, so I'm focusing here on the one, the history of Tibetan of this Tibetan Buddhist sorcery, the category. Can we speak in those terms? One, I want to get into the issues of whether we we can reevaluate this category, which is uh, now sort of out of fashion uh, for good reason, but but uh, but maybe not. I mean, they reassess this category of magic as a useful um, analytical term. Uh, how would we describe this? But even whatever terms we would use, there's this uh, this sort of uh, ritual of political action, uh, aggressive mm-hmm. ritual that's aimed at. Uh, silencing your enemies mm. or establishing uh, political power. And uh, it's a very important uh, component of the Tibetan um, history, Tibetan Buddhist history. And certainly is at the heart of the formation of the centralized Tibetan state in the mm. 17th century and the fifth Dalai Lama of the 17th century uh, very uh, influential to the great fifth uh, was involved in, in these sorts of rituals quite pervasively uh, in, in dealing with uh, perceived enemies of of the government. And so I'm, I'm looking into this uh, also focusing on some of the history of some of the main practitioners, some of the great sorcerers, Buddhist sorcerers of Tibet. Uh, one in particular who I'm uh, now working on a bi- uh, translation of a very controversial biography of the 11th century 
a Buddhist sorcerer named Ra Lotsawa. Hmm. Um, so that hopefully will be coming out in the next few years. Um, so this this is what I'm working on now. It's like I say, it's a, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess there's some connections to our. They say is there's still a little bit of a dark streak <laughs> in in that. Um, well, I mean, you know, it sounds like fascinating, uh, you know, extra history that we don't we don't often hear about. You know, everyone knows the Dalai Lama and and and, uh, and you know, but I think many people don't really know the full history of Tibet, and to know that history from this this side of ritual or magic is uh, right, right, important, fascinating stuff. Looking forward. To well, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you. And you have to be careful with uh, with those with those terms. You don't want to. Uh, often, Tibet has always been the paradigm, and mm-hmm. often in a negative way, as the magic realm, you know, mm-hmm. or something. Just the flying llamas and these kinds of things. So, uh, it's important to be uh, responsible and critically sensitive to the use of some of these terms. But, but. Uh, there's certainly some. Uh, I think there's some cause for reevaluating those terms and maybe bringing some of them back into use for understanding some of these practices, um, which are, as I said, are pervasive in Tibetan history and actually pervasive throughout much of the northern Buddhist world. I mean, I know in Japan, it's the, this, these kinds of activities are. There's a lot of literature on that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, a lot of the, I, th- I feel like there's lots of crossover here. There's the, the storytellers in Japan and many rituals for the the, the, the state or the empire. So uh, yeah, yeah, so great, great stuff. Um, well, well, thank, thank you again for for, you. for for chatting with us today. I'm uh, uh, highly well, recommend your you. book and looking forward to seeing more from you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and thank you again and uh, take care, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell, and we've been talking with Brian Cuevas and his new book, Travels in the Netherworld, Buddhist Popular Narratives of Death and the Afterlife in Tibet, which is going to be released in paperback this fall from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening.